As I mentioned, before the service began, my name is Pastor Mant. If you don't know me, please, let's talk afterwards. And again, if you're a child, I will give you something if you come tell me your name. But as a new church here in the Chippewa Valley, um, it's our desire to preach a little bit before, as we have in these preview services, as we will, as we begin this fall, to, to talk about in our sermons what we want to be central to our identity as a church. Um, and as with the Presbyterian Church in America, we want to be faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. Now, it's okay if you don't know what all those mean, but that's what we're talking about in our sermons. So, last time I talked about what it means to be faithful to the Scriptures. That means today, we're going to talk about what it means to be true to the Reformed faith. However, I should warn you, a single sermon is not the place to explain all the terminology and all the history behind what's called Reformed theology. Instead, we get something better. We get to look at Psalm 115. And this will teach us many of the truths that, and impulses that motivate and dominate Reformed theology. Because the psalm will fix our eyes on a God much bigger than we are. Much bigger than a God, a God bigger than we've ever imagined. And that is what the goal of Reformed theology is, is to teach us about that God. So let me pray and then we will read Psalm 115 together. Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, we praise you because you are there and you are not silent, but you speak to us by your word. Lord, glorify your name in the speaking of your word this morning and in how each of us receive it. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Would you stand with me as we read Psalm 115? It's in the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, otherwise, please turn with me in your Bible and I'll read it. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see, they have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. They make no sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is our help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. 
but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. In 2021, Michael Easter, a professor at the University of Nevada, published his now best-selling book, The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. The question he asks in his book is, are we too comfortable today? Through his research and his own personal journey hunting caribou in the uncharted Alaskan tundra, he concludes that not only have our modern comforts and conveniences not made us more happy, but they are probably one of the main things causing us problems. He says, we are living progressively sheltered, sterile, temperature-controlled, overfed, under-challenged, safety-netted lives. And he says this kind of lifestyle causes all kinds of health problems, anxiety, and he calls what he calls the fundamental issue faced by comfortable people, a lack of meaning or purpose in life. He claims lots of kinds of discomfort would actually benefit us, like boredom, fasting, um, physical exhaustion, and even the practice of regularly considering our own death. Perhaps today, what's wrong with so much of what calls itself Christianity and spirituality in general is a comfortable God and a comfortable religion. Is it possible in our effort to make God attractive to our neighbors, we've lost touch with what's most important about God? Because it seems out of sync with the Bible, because when people encounter God in the Bible, what do they do? They fall on their face. They hide. But what would a comfortable God be like? Perhaps for some, a comfortable God would be like Santa Claus. God just wants you to be good and wants to make you happy. And he only visits once a year, really. So he's not that involved in your everyday life. What would a comfortable Jesus be like? Well, I'd be very comfortable with Jesus as long as he would approve of my lifestyle choices, assure me my problems are someone else's fault, and put a lot of value on me being my authentic self. That Jesus would come to make sure I love myself no matter what. So what's the problem? That doesn't sound very much like the God of the Bible, does it? That God sounds like the product of marketing experts in a corporate office. One of our greatest needs today is to recover the untamed God of the Bible. The God who, like the uncharted Alaskan tundra, is undomesticated, dangerous, but beautiful. This is the God Psalm 115 and the rest of the Bible reveals to us. Psalm 115 teaches us how to recognize the God who is and who to trust. The psalm says we trust him, unlike the idols, who will devastate us if we do. And trusting him will bring us blessing. And finally, trusting him will glorify him. First, and the majority of the psalm, calls our attention between the difference between idols and God. 
This psalm was one of Israel's special Hallel psalms, which is where we get our word hallelujah. They held a special place in the life of Israel. They were sang on all the most sacred holidays, Passover, um, Hanukkah, they're still sang then there today. And the Jews who sang these psalms on these holidays lived long after the great days of David and Solomon. Israel, in fact, had been conquered. The temple had been destroyed and never recovered the glory it had before. They were a small part of the Persian Empire before they were conquered again by Rome. So there is a problem they're facing, and this is where the psalm starts. If their God is the creator, if he's so powerful, then why are they in such bad circumstances? And apparently, this problem was evident to the nations around him, who were asking, so where's your God? Why are you so weak? There are many voices today asking the same kind of question. Christian, where is your God? Where is your God if we can't find him by the scientific method? Where is your God in all these wildfires? Where is your God in Ukraine? Perhaps we hear these voices internally when healing doesn't come that we're seeking with prayer, during job loss, when our children leave the faith, when life doesn't go according to plan. Because all of this suffering, all of these circumstances can call to question God's glory and power. So how does the psalmist respond to this problem? Quite simply, he gives a theology lesson. This is why theology really matters. It's not something for professional Christians or a few. Theology is just the word we use for describing knowing God. Many of you know my wife's name is Amy. So technically, for me, there would be a kind of amyology, the knowledge of my wife. And it would be very strange for me to say things like, I love Amy, she's really important to me, but I don't want to get into all that knowing details about her. I mean, that all goes over my head, that whole conversation. I have a great relationship with her, I just don't know anything about her. No, we all recognize how ridiculous that sounds. My relationship with her is defined by who she is and who I am. So it is with God. We can't love him if we don't know him. We can't trust him until we know who he is. So, who is he? Verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is the description the psalmist used to distinguish the true God from the gods of the other nations. In Israel's day, virtually every society had a deity it worshipped. Many had a number of deities. However, the problem with all these gods were they were gods of someone's imagination. The uncomfortable question we must ask is, could I be trusting in a god of my own imagination? Even if I don't know it, could I be worshiping an idol? Well, the psalm today gives us some clues, some descriptions of idols to help us realize the times in our life where we are settling for a substitute God. First, and most importantly, the idols are man-made. Now again, we don't live in a culture that manufactures idols, statues for worshiping, but many people today believe in a God they thought up. 
I mean, ask almost anyone to describe God out in Eau Claire, and what will they do? Well, they will start telling you a definition of God they made up, many of them on the fly. Ask people questions about, well, why would you do worship God that way? Why do you think about God that way? They would go, well, I mean, that's what I've always done. It's just more comfortable to define a God by our own ideas, intuitions, and traditions. I mean, for one, if I make God, I control him. Whether I make him out of wood or my own ideas. If I do, I define what God will do for me, what he requires of me, and how we will relate. Second, God and religion become primarily about getting what I want. Whether it's rain for my crops, a good family, feeling less anxious, having more money, finding spiritual peace, this is what the God I create will do for me. This is what my religion is for. Idolatry makes worship about us and getting what we want. And because of this, idols are valuable. The psalm says these gods are made out of silver and gold, precious metals. You see, people don't easily part with their money or their idols. Threaten the idols of any person or any community and get ready for a backlash. Call into question what someone spends their time on or their money on, the things we use to show our value, and get ready for a backlash. These things show us where our idols are. So that means our relationships, our family, our money, our physical appearance, sex, identity, or comfort can all be idols if we seek ultimate fulfillment in them. But there's a problem with all these gods, right? The psalm says they're powerless and they degrade us. They cannot see, so they make us blind. They cannot hear, so they make us deaf. They cannot speak, so they make us mute. They have no power. The gods we make are just as limited as we are. They're not above the problems we need help with. So what you worship really, really matters. The true God has power idols don't. And trusting him will save you, and trusting them will destroy you. David Foster Wallace, now passed away, is a famous author and was an atheist. But at his famous graduation talk, he gave a discussion of why everyone worships and how worshiping the wrong thing will destroy you. Quote, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need more power over others to keep your fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will feel stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Even an atheist can realize the problem. And the psalmist presents the solution. 
Because as David Foster Wallace said, the only question is, what will you worship? The solution to self-destructive idolatry is to worship the God who is in the heavens, who does all he pleases. First, we learn where God is. He's in the heavens. So we may not always see him working. His dwelling in heavens means he's not limited like us. He doesn't live on earth. He is far above us. God dwells in a place free of us and free of our sin. And this God does all he pleases. Any God that can't do anything he wants is not God. Any God limited by anything outside of himself, including human free will, is not the God in heaven. God isn't like an ambulance driver trying to make the best of disasters and evils. Another way to say this is God is sovereign. Nothing is outside of his control. No one can challenge his right to act the way he does. No one can challenge his power to do it either. Just like Psalm 115, the prophet Isaiah says it's God's total sovereignty that proves he's the true God. This is how Isaiah compares God to the idols. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the setting, people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I create light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, this kind of untamed God can make us feel uncomfortable. And we need it. You need a bigger God. Now, there's a great children's song that can help you remember this. If you're a child, I hope you know it. Kids, if you don't know it, make your parents sing it to you. The song is called, My God is So Big. Right? Do you know how it goes? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Now, I won't keep singing it, but if you're a child and you don't know it, you need to make your parents sing it to you. Because it is such a good reminder to trust in God. Because he can save us from all circumstance. He's big. He's mighty. He's not limited. So his ability to save us isn't limited either. And God and this surpassing power is the center of Reformed theology. The truth of God's power is simple enough to put in a children's song, but it doesn't mean it's not difficult to accept. When we talk about these things, we get a lot of questions. If God controls everything, then why is there so much evil? Why would he let anyone be born in North Korea? Why would he create disaster like Isaiah says? Why doesn't he just save everybody if he can? Why would children get cancer? Why would he make it so hard to believe in him? And you can fill in the innumerable other questions. The fact, though, is the answer is simple. It's just not comfortable. The answer is, God does all that he pleases, not all that we please. We shouldn't assume God wants the exact same things we do. His plans are not our plans. They're better, which is why we trust him. So, we trust God because unlike the idols, he is real and he is powerful. But there's a second reason the psalm gives us to trust him. 
Trusting him brings blessing. Now, a God who can do anything could just be terrifying. I mean, could you trust him? If you look at a raging wildfire or tornado, that can inspire a lot of awe in you. You know you have no control over it. But your reaction isn't trust or thankfulness, it's run. Take cover. You can't trust a tornado. But God is not just all-powerful. He's trustworthy. Verses 9 through 15 tell us why. Because this God who can do anything he wants, wants to bless you in Jesus Christ. Three times the psalm says, God is their help and their shield. Our God doesn't do things to hurt you, but help you. He is our shield. In the ancient world, shields were indispensable to all soldiers. This was their primary defense. Having the right shield for the right battle was a matter of life and death. Having the right God is no different. It's a life or death issue. And the great God of heaven offers to shield you. He offers to protect you. He offers you security, nothing else can, because he can do it no matter your circumstance. The psalm repeatedly then says, he will bless you. This term for blessing is a term for the giving of peace, complete contentment and salvation. The people trust God because he can bless them no matter their circumstance. This is what our reading from Romans reminded us. It reminds us that God's sovereign control isn't a problem, but a great comfort when we're suffering. Remember, it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God's plan for salvation covers everything that happens. And his purpose is to bless all those who love him. This verse in Romans describes two things. One, it tells us why God is working for our ultimate good, for our eternal salvation, experiencing the love of Christ. Secondly, it describes a number of things God can do and can work that purpose through. God works that purpose, the Romans says, through trouble, through tragedy, through persecution, through hunger, through poverty, danger, and even death. So what's the ultimate evidence when you think about the hard things in this world or in your life that you can trust God? It's Jesus. We don't always know God's plan. We certainly don't know why he allows the pain and evil in our world. But we know that the greatest act of love he ever did came through the greatest evil. On the cross, Jesus Christ Son of God and sinless, was tortured and murdered. On the cross, sinful men killed the Lord of glory, and God, out of his love, gave his Son to die for your sins. And if we can believe God to have a good purpose in the death of Jesus Christ, then we can trust him with the rest. Both Romans and this psalm encourage us to trust God because he's promised to bless us. God has willingly bound himself to us by a promise. And because God's power is unlimited, we don't need to worry about him breaking his promises. They don't fail. 
And as we receive these promises, we respond to him by faith. This is a personal trust. We trust him as our God. Our God is in the heavens. We have faith in him because he alone saves. We're to trust God like children do their parents. There are plenty of people strong enough to pick up your children and throw them high into the air and catch them. But who do children run to to do that? They run to their dads to throw them into the air. They give up control. They risk safety. And they don't do it begrudgingly. They say again. They do it with a smile because they believe and trust their dad will always catch them. In Reformed theology, faith in God like that is the center of the Christian life. So, we trust God because he's the only true God. We trust him because he blesses those with salvation who do. Finally, the psalm starts and ends in the same place. We trust God because it gives him glory. The psalmist proclaims, Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. The psalmist, when he appeals to God for help, appeals to his steadfast love, his faithfulness, not how good he's been recently. He doesn't say, look how much we've done for you, God. He doesn't say, oh Lord, you know we deserve better. He doesn't even say, help, I need you. You see, neither our worthiness or neediness makes God love us. There's something in God that makes him love us, not in us. The psalmist asks God to help because that's the kind of God he is. God, we know your love doesn't fail and you're always faithful to your promises. We know you're glorious and we have a glorious plan and we want to see it. The psalmist appeals to something in God for help, for salvation. He asks God to bless them and save them for God's glory. Trust in God glorifies God because it shows we believe God is enough. We trust God alone will accomplish our salvation. He doesn't need you to add to it. God is glorified when we trust him despite our circumstances as well. Because we are choosing to believe that following God is the best possible outcome, no matter what that means for us, because it glorifies God. And this plan of God's glory is profoundly good news because God has willingly tied his glory to our salvation. The psalm says this, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So if God is blessing his people, it's so that they can glorify him and praise him. But there's a question. God, how will we praise you if we perish? The psalmist knows one thing's for certain. God will be glorified. And God is glorified when his people praise him. But the dead do not praise God. But his people will praise them forevermore. Hmm. So the psalmist concludes, if God wants us to praise him forevermore, then we will. God will deliver us even from death. Not even your death can stop God from being glorified in you. Because God can give life to the dead. 
So we trust God to save us because we know he's glorified in saving us, giving us resurrection, and giving us eternal life. And this is the greatest possible assurance you can have of eternal life because God has tied being glorified to it. And so in Reformed theology, God's glory is the ultimate motivation for all we do. This is where the psalm begins and ends, praising the all-powerful God who gives salvation to whoever he desires. And while this description of God is poetic, it's beautiful, it is uncomfortable. But again, this untamed God is perhaps what you need most. Perhaps to recover a life of worship and a theology and salvation, this God viewed this way can breathe new life into you. While you may never trek alone through the uncharted Alaskan tundra, we can seek to come to terms with the God who created it. And while it's not easy, it is profoundly beautiful. C.S. Lewis captures this feeling in his classic book, The Chronicles of Narnia. The three children are whisked away to the magical land, and their need and help of a great king to help them free the land from the winter brought about by an evil witch. Before going to find this king, they meet a family of beavers. So in Narnia, if you don't know, all the animals can talk. They learn that the rightful king of Narnia is a lion. And they're unsure what to think about that. They wonder if they should be afraid. And so they ask this. Susan asked, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without falling on their knees knocking, they're braver or they're just silly, said Miss, Be- Miss Beaver. Then he, then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. And Mr. Beaver replied, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not safe. God is not to be trifled with but he is good. Following Jesus is good, but not safe. He's the king. This God, who can do whatever he wants, can save at any time. This is the God of wrath and mercy. This is the God who uses death to bring resurrection. This is the God who chose to win by losing, who brings comfort to the suffering. This is the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So he is the only God worth trusting because he is the only God able to save to the uttermost. So the question is this. Do you trust him? Let me pray. Lord of life, be our helper and our shield. Grant us here the gift of faith. Help us believe in your promises and in Christ shield us from the punishment of our sin. Bless us and our children with this faith always. We pray that this will be to your glory. Amen.